0: What if we told you that hidden behind a greedy drug company patent allowed a cure to the deadliest disease in human history? On this week's America Dissected, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed talks to author and philanthropist John Green about how he and his fan base finally put an end to Johnson & Johnson's reign on bedquiline, a life-saving drug that had previously been inaccessible under the drug company's patent. Listen to this and more of America Dissected. New episodes drop Tuesday wherever you pod. Hey, this is Dorey, and welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, it's me, Miles, Kai, and Dr. Talking about all the news that you don't know from the past week—the news with regard to race, justice, and equity that went underreported but is important. And then Kai sits down with author and publishing professional Jennifer Baker to discuss her recent article: "Black Women Are Being Erased in Book Publishing." I learned a lot. Kai learned a lot, and you will too. Here we go.
1: Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Dr Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram at Dr Ballinger.
2: I am Maldy Johnson. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Pharaoh Rapture. Not Pharaoh, Pharaoh. I'm
3: Kaya Henderson. You can find me on Twitter at Henderson Kaya. This
1: is Duray at D.R.Y. Twitter. Well, lots of news. Lots of news happening over this week and this weekend. I don't know if I'm saying the obvious, but I've been more and more into the political realm recently, both because of, I don't know, this country could be on the brink of crisis if we don't elect the right people, but also just some really interesting feelings I have around my own party, the Democratic Party, and what's going on with some of our leadership. I mean, we can't say step down to people on the other side, when on our side, Folks that are getting indicted on corruption won't step down, and you know, I have to say though. Okay, so I'm talking about Bob Menendez. If you all haven't um, haven't followed, so he's a not United States Senator, New Jersey. He and his wife have been charged with bribery, um, and and they've been accused of accepting bribes from a range of corrupt acts, including influencing foreign policy for the benefit of Egypt. Okay. I think what I loved most about this story was the New York Times reporting over the weekend, where we learned that the Fed got a warrant, went into his house. And what they found in the house was so like Goodfellas style, I just had to chuckle to myself. Gold bars, gold bars, like actual gold bars were found, hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash and some of the cash was stuffed into Senator Benitez's like actual Senator jacket, which I didn't even know they had like Senator swag, but I guess, I guess they do. Um, So all of this is happening. It's a major, (laughs) huge case um, with lots of media fanfare. So yeah, it's conspiracy to commit bribery, conspiracy to commit honest services fraud and conspiracy to commit extortion under color of an official right him being a senator obviously. So with all of this, he has not stepped down. He is supposed to hold a press conference today where we will learn more of his side of the story. And listen, you know, as an attorney as somebody that you know somewhat believes in the system that we have You are innocent until proven guilty. I just want to know, how do you explain those gold bars? And where do you take a gold bar? Like, do you have to take a gold bar to Switzerland to have it turned into money?
3: (laughs)
2: Or
1: would you just make it into some earrings? Like, how?
3: I bet you could take it to Midtown Manhattan and (laughs) figure it out. Somebody yeah. there's gonna get it for you. <laughs>
1: or just wear it around wear it on a chain. I guess that's another <laughs> thing you could do. Just forget it.
2: Like I said a little bit um earlier before we got on air, that I'll let people like in on the thought process is that I think sometimes we're all in our own deprivation tanks of what we have to concentrate on during our week, <laughs> and sometimes this is my gateway into other conversations. Um, I'll, I'll hear, I'll hear about, read about it peripherally or through the news, but hearing it from you all, it reads like a, a like a, like a Marvel comic. It's, 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 it's really, it's really, 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 really ridiculous, and a look. Li- <laughs> and and just like cartoonish just cartoonish i was weird me and my partner were literally watching um batman the 1998 version and this does not feel far off from you know batman tim burton directed it's really 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 uh absurd and obviously I'm bad but absurd i don't have as much faith as dr does in the um, legal system so i'll go ahead and call him guilty now because i've seen enough episodes of scooby-doo to know where this is gonna go <laughs> it feels obvious where this is gonna go and and that you were doing wrong and yeah it's but the, the absurdity of just the gold bars is just in the money, it's 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 baffling that there's not more decorum in how people evil villain anymore. There's comic book styling it now.
1: And I just want to jump into because this is I think the other thing that just contextually makes this really bad is that he was indicted for federal bribery before. And, and he- it was a hung it was a hung jury, so there was no conviction, but it's like but it was on some completely, it was on a whole nother crime.
2: Most so it's kind people- of most people villains try to oh. do it two times. Most of the wasn't, times it I never- also,
3: wasn't it also bribery? <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So maybe. It but it
3: wasn't it, Egypt. It was oh, a whole nother.
0: <laughs> I will say it just is so brazen. And like we, like I'm like, what do you do with gold bars? Like somebody registers gold. I don't know. I feel like there's a registry of gold bars. Like that feels like a real dramatic thing. And I will, you know, I, I have to imagine that. Somebody is probably checking this sort of stuff. I don't know. It's only but so many senators, right? It's only a hundred of y'all. I feel like bribing has to be one of the things that people are checking for. So we'll see with this one. And his his the arrogance of not resigning. But I guess if I got charged with bribery before and got off on it, I probably wouldn't resign either. So <laughs> so here we go. But it does not bode well for the Dems as the party of integrity up against the wild Republicans. Um, that you- is a bad look.
1: But, you know, Dre, I was thinking about this because I think that it's sort of, you know, kind of with the perspective that the DOJ isn't just going after Trump and his cronies. Like it is, you know, I I think there is something to be said about, you know, this being a Democratic administration and they still going after corruption like this. I think I I think there's a story to tell there that's positive. Um, But yeah, but but holistically, the fact that he won't step down doesn't doesn't hurt, doesn't help the
3: case. I mean, that's the epitome of privilege, right? Um, But kudos to the entire Democratic Party of New Jersey, which, who are like, listen, clown, you got to go. Um, They're all calling, from the governor to all of the other elected officials, they're calling for his resignation. And, you know, he is being recalcitrant Hold in a press conference today where he has already said he's not going to resign. And I mean, this is the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Like, this is not just some <laughs> random senator. This yep. is a dude who holds incredible power, who has a say over where massive amounts of money go, and he's very cheaply bought and paid for by a handful of business people in New Jersey. It's wild. I feel like these political times that we are living in are so crazy, and this is just another example. It did remind me, I know
0: we're not talking about him in depth today, but the Clarence Thomas photo with Kim Burns, I felt bad for Kim Burns. I was like, Hmm. ooh, that is a bad photo to be in. And Clarence Thomas was out here just doing it real obvious, just taking photos with the billionaires, people before the court. You're like, the
3: scam is the scam. And in sports news, because I'm now your sports correspondent, which might be the most hilarious thing in the whole wide world. um, Lots of interesting stuff happening this weekend, but... Uh, two of the biggest is Cousin Prime um, and Colorado lost spectacularly um, to Oklahoma. Was it Oklahoma? Good Lord. This is why I shouldn't be your sports correspondent. Um Oh no, Oregon! Sorry, the Oregon Ducks. That's who it was. But Oregon's really good, though, Kai. Aren't Oregon they historically is super good. really good. O- Oregon is super good. And they went green. The first, I know that. The first, that's true. Green and yellow. The first two teams that Coach Prime and and the Buffaloes played were ranked super low, and so there are people who are like, "Of course, they were going to win those games." And the next two games coming up are with top ten teams, and so all of the predictions were that they were going to be shellacked, and uh, and you know. It was a setback, but still like the whole, you can't, you cannot, you can't miss the prime effect. The whole entire season for Colorado, the the stadium is sold out. That has never been the case before, right? You got people showing up to these games, paying attention to these games, most watch games, you know, in history for this school and, and, and some of these matchups. And so, you know, you could hate them if you want to, but Deion Sanders has re-energized. In fact, you can't call him Deion. You have to call him Coach Prime. Otherwise, he walks out of the press conference, which I find hilarious. I mean, for me, <laughs> like the the whole thing is the whole thing is about doing this on his terms. And football is an overwhelmingly white male sport that does not do things on black men's terms, even though black men fuel the entire freaking sport. But. Coach Dion is like, look, his his whole response to this, right? All the chit chat, all the haters, all the whatever. He's like, look, look at me now, because this is the worst you're gonna see me. Now, if he can hold on to that, whew, good golly. I like I if I hope I, I want him to win. I want him to crush the whole entire place. Um, and we will not be able to live in the world of a winning coach Prime. So I'm of two minds. But um, so that was big this weekend in sports. And then the other thing, whew, chow. They announced that my man, Urshur Raymond, is going to be the Super Bowl uh, performer this year in Las Vegas. And let me just say this. You know, I like I like Usher, cool, whatever, whatever. And then I went to see that concert in Las Vegas, y'all. And I'm telling you, it is in my top 10 concerts of all time. That dude is a whole performer. And, like, I knew every single song except one because, unbeknownst to me, Usher has been the background soundtrack of my life since I was in my 20s. And so this dude is a showman. He puts on a show. I cannot wait. I called my man. I was like, babe, you better call every connect you have to get us some Super Bowl tickets for Las Vegas. Pod Save the People family, if you know somebody who can help your auntie get some tickets to the Super Bowl in Las Vegas and a hotel room. Please hit me up on the Twitter <laughs> oh because I got to go, friends. It's going to be spectacular. And the way they announced it, Miles, you would love this. They put out a series of reels. The first one was with Kim Kardashian calling I him that to say, right? Then Marshawn Lynch. Then um, Odell Beckham Jr. who was like, oh, and I got some moves. I could help you. I could like... I, I Yo, the whole thing was just classic and classy. And he's so excited. Like, his interviews are so energetic and whatnot. It's going to be fantastic. Okay, I'm done.
0: What I will say about Coach Prime that I think is great is I love, like, what a quintessential coach. That afterwards, his quote was, we play like hot garbage, good old-fashioned butt-kicking, no excuse. Like, he just owns it. And what do you say to the person that just owns it? Now, what annoyed me about the coach from Oregon, and this is a non-football watcher. Is that the Oregon guy does this whole thing, you know, he's playing for Hollywood, all the flashing glitz to the And I'm like, OK, fair critique, like interesting critique. And then I look it up. Oregon has cleats that change colors. They have a gazillion different um, combinations of uniforms and Nike like they have done so much to get attention from people that it's Prom doing it in his way with the sunglasses and that got everybody ticked off. But it's like, y'all have been doing... it. you just mad that the the country is in the middle of the night watching this random team that nobody cared about before? And that was the best tweet I saw. Somebody was like, we will not be watching another Oregon game, but we will be watching every mm-hmm. single game of mm-hmm. Colorado. And you're mm-hmm. like, and the recruiting for next season, this team going to be unbeatable.
1: Well, now I just was going to bring up the one thing on Usher because I was watching... Um, Gail um, Gail and Nate on CBS this morning because that's what I watched in the morning and Usher was on Mm. and Nate and Gail both were talking about Usher can you get us some tickets Uh, can you make sure that we how y'all asking that
3: man on live TV you know (laughs) ask him when you can and the, Kim, was on. and the Kim Kardashian reel, she's like, so oh, yeah. it's going it's to be me, my whole family, all my kids, and probably about 10 other people. So who do I call for tickets? <laughs> call exactly <laughs> that poor, whoever that person is. I just oh, I feel sorry Bless you. Brutal. Bless you. Hang
1: is in
2: it, there.
0: <laughs> you know, the other person that was on uh, Good Morning America was the, the people from the dock. It was a little boy who swam across the river. The who so jumped out the boat. He was on the. Um, he oh. got interviewed by Robin Roberts this morning, and then the guy who got jumped by the white people. He also got interviewed today on Robin Roberts. And Robin, she says, "Have you ever swam that fast?" And the little boy is like, "No, I have not." Oh, you mean well, uh, in the Mississippi, fight, in, or no, in, Alabama. Alabama. in Montgomery, in Montgomery, in Alabama. In Alabama? They did their Folding first. Chair. They did their first TV show interview this huh. morning, with Robin Roberts. Oh, I have to. I
2: have to see that. <laughs> I am so excited about Usher. Um, I was a teenager, a preteen, in fact, because of youth, in Atlanta when (laughs) Usher dropped the Confessions album. So, like, Usher is obviously a legend to most people, but I can't even explain how Usher is in, in, in my head because if you weren't in Atlanta at 12 or 13 when Yeah came out, and the whole... A town stomp, and you just couldn't move through the underground of Atlanta without hearing it blasting. In similar ways, you can't move through Manhattan without hearing um, that Alicia Keith and Jay Z Empire State of Mind song. It was the same way. So I'm so excited that um, I'm so excited that Usher is getting this opportunity because it feels like a hometown superstar getting a global moment. And that's not always that easy specifically one where he's the center of it because because he's a little bit older now I was afraid that he will always have to share the stage with 5,000 other people when Usher should really be taking it over and taking over the stage so I'm excited to watch that 15 minutes and then pretend I know what else is happening the other (laughs) however long the Super Bowl has (laughs) I also want to say that Bell Hooks um, is celebrating a heavenly birthday today. Uh, I was just telling everybody how it's interesting because I remember the day that I found the weekend that I found out Bell Hooks passed away. And she means so much to me and so much to obviously the black community and the black feminist and black queer communities and how this podcast was such a respite and oasis to be able to talk about my appreciation and love for bell hooks and it's wild that now um you know it's been about two years um be doing this every time her birthday comes up. And it's just, uh, it's just, it's just wild. And I also just want to say that you can feel bell hooks is imprinting all over the internet, all over YouTube out, outside of watching old movies and all the other geeky stuff that I consume with my partner. We watch so many young black feminist women who are 18 to 25 to 30 to, you know, just eight, just, just that kind of like 18 to 35 year old pocket make cultural critique videos talk about culture talk about the kardashians but in an intellectual way talk about different trends and dissect them talk about different music videos and dissect them and there's a whole generation of i think bell hook students who are taking over the internet and that feels really good to see so many black women finding so many young black women finding their intellectual voice and taking it to the streets and you know i i I always get a little emotional because she just means so much to me, but I wanted to just give her love and and remind y'all to read y'all books and whatever you have of Bell Hooks, go read it and get your feelings hurt and then heal from that. And then get your feelings hurt again and and, and heal from that. Do do your good Bell Hooks work in her honor today.
1: The other big news that we got actually, like it came in late last night, early this morning is that they are reached a preliminary agreement with the writer's strike. Um, I think we're still waiting on specifics. I don't think they've told us yet what's going to happen around things like AI. Um, But right now, it's looking like we are getting close to having an end officially to the WGA strike, which is really, really good news. I think it's like at 150-something days it's gone on. Mm -hmm. Um, So you know we'll we'll stay post you know stay posted and 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 see how how it all plays out but that's we'll just the all-
3: writers right the actors it's just the writers cannot, it's okay. just the writers yep it's just the writers i was going to tweet this
0: and then i was like i'm not trying to fight people about labor about the labor process but somebody had said that the um, management was like, "This is the best and final offer," and they were like, "Don't say that because we get to." The-. And I was like, "They did say you know, that. That was." A and I was like, "Well, that you. actually yeah. matters that you say it's the best and final offer."
3: That is actually a a recognized negotiating tool. That's
0: an actual thing. It wasn't like yeah. The internet took it as like the manager was flexing, and it's like, no, no, that's actually an important thing to say because after the best and final you go to a mediator and don't nobody yes. want to go to a mediator because a mediator mm-hmm. is a disinterested third party that gets to decide. So when you name it the best and final offer, it really does force everybody's hand to figure out a way because the option after that is never a great one. Mm-hmm. So I didn't do that online because I was like not trying to fight people who've never been a part of a negotiation. But saying <laughs> the best and final offer is not a bad thing. <laughs> Which was his
2: own flex. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was just, <laughs> I love the Ray because the is never going to be as uh, nasty as I will be. <laughs> but I like the little, little, the little flexes that I'm going be. Kai, you know
0: what I'm talking about?
2: I, I understand exactly what you're talking about. Um, I really hope that I'm so happy for everybody. All writers, everybody that want to say that, you know, well, I wouldn't it be me if I didn't just sprinkle my little black velvet, pessimism on some stuff or perspective. I really hope that this strike is also encouraging people, specifically black people, specifically LGBT black people and brown people and anybody who's disadvantaged to maybe not lean on these corporations like they have like they have been. Like it's different when you know, Jennifer Aniston and, and Drew Barrymore are doing something in solidarity. They can afford to do it. But it really broke my heart to see how many actors, how many writers were plugged into this uh, uh, quite cannibalistic industry and were maybe surprised or devastated once the lights were turned off. And I think that this is a bigger thing when it comes to people in the entertainment industry and people who are in the arts because we love it so much that often we can plug into something that at any given moment it can turn it it off on us. Be AI, be it because of a strike or be it or anything. I would just hate for us to get so green and so, oh, it's over that we don't keep the the lessons that we learned. You know, I would love to see more independent things come out. I would love to see more writers getting together and creating maybe more companies, maybe more, again, more independent material, more things where you have opportunity that if the industry you're plugged into decides to act violent, you actually have some, what my mama calls F.U. money, you know, and and having that F.U., and having those F.U. resources and that F.U. community. I think that is so imperative. So I know it's not realistic to just totally unplug from something. I haven't, but I think things like this become wake up calls that it's time to think maybe a little bit more expansively about our creativity so we won't be victims
1: Mm -hmm. and miles i'll just add to that because this is something that you know you and i have talked about but just for creators and creatives and artists to understand y'all is a business your business and so understanding what that means for your ip understanding what that means for your financial planning they organizations. There's one based in D.C. my girl Kim Tignor runs. It's called Take Creative Control, which helps artists protect their IP. So I think partly it's like you you actually have to get into doing the research around how to protect yourself, because I know you just won't be free and create. But you business. <laughs>
2: Anyway, DR just whoops me <laughs> <laughs> over the podcast. She just took me by the ear. I don't know if y'all
0: heard it. <laughs> hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come.
3: Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors. No prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like calorie smart Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave. And it literally is restaurant quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, Yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not
4: Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.
2: So, my news for this week is none other than a little uh, known artist, um, indie artist, if you will. We're giving them some shout outs and support. Their names are Beyonce, Meg Thee Stallion. Um, struggling artists who almost nobody's heard of but talented women nonetheless <laughs> no but in all seriousness i wanted to talk about speaking of the dep- cultural deprivation take i felt like I-, I feel like i'm in uh making the stallions rise in this Tory lanes moment had a had a happened in a very interesting moment of my life so i wasn't as plugged in to th- as it was happening, everything that I've learned has really been more retroactive because I was just unplugged from um, the internet when when that whole incident happened because it was during COVID and, you know, the world was happening in jail. Looking back, I saw the documentary, read all the materials, um, and this was just ahead of her performing with Beyonce. I have a newfound perspective that it's probably late for, you know, late to most people. But also, I've not seen anything written about it. But Big of the Stallion is this generation's uh, feminist line in the sand. This, this is one of those situations that... Unlike D Barnes, unlike um, so many, uh, unlike uh, Michelet, who uh, Dr. Dre's Michelet, this is a moment where the superstars of hip hop are really commenting, and superstars of black pop culture are really commenting on how they feel about Megan Thee Stallion. And I feel like this moment is, is already feels big, but I think that culturally, the significance, we can't even hardly measure it. The fact that this happened, he's going to jail, and there are still people like Drake. Not little Boosie. <laughs> not not comic view comedian who we haven't seen on regular television in ten years. But the fact that Drake, the one of the biggest hip hop stars, is commenting on this, and also Beyonce, the biggest superstar, is commenting on this. This is why this this. this is wild. Um, again, Drake is one of those. Drake is the biggest superstar. He's not little boosty. Uh Beyonce is not just hilarious or another commentator who's kind of known to be in maybe more tabloid uh, uh, moments. This is a huge Black cultural moment. And I think I'm just now understanding the gravity. And now that this scandal's to me disappearing around it, that, oh, wow, people are literally using this moment to claim their political stakes and their their boundaries and and who they are and rappers are using this moment singers are using this moment, political commentators are using this moment. Everybody who's 18 to 35 needs to have a stance of where they sit with this because it just seems like this is that pinnacle moment for us. It reminds me of Nita Hill it reminds me of Monica Lewinsky it reminds me of that kind of stuff but for hip-hop culture and I feel like hip-hop culture has never had this moment you see that Kimora Lee Simmons and Russell Simmons and Diddy's just now happen certain things are just now happening. This feels unique that, oh, something happened and the repercussions are happening within the first five years of it happening. And you have to decide right now.
3: I might beg to differ on that because yeah. I think that I mean, I think you're right in, in citing all the times that nothing happened <laughs> as a result of, of, of abuse. Um, but I feel like there was similar outrage and commentary and conversation around the Chris Brown-Rihanna incident. And, and then it fizzled away. So, so one, like, I think we're still talking about it. There was not, there was not the criminal ramifications in the Chris Brown thing. And I think that is a huge difference. Um, But I am interested to see how long, Hollywood, not Hollywood, whatever the rap world, the the pop culture, whatever the thing is, how long we keep this alive and how or how quickly we put this down and keep it moving.
2: Well was or even years. So I think that says something too, that this that this did happen during the COVID uh uh you know, in the, in the peak of COVID, and we're still talking about it, and Beyonce and Drake are just now commenting on it in the past two weeks. So I think that already shows longevity. And then also, while I was kind of stuttering between hip hop culture and Black pop culture and stuff like that, is because Rihanna has a very different positionality. So she was seen as sunshine, Caribbean girl, who was the heir of a Beyonce or Sierra or Shanti or an Aaliyah. Make the stallion is a woman, a black woman who got her um fame from ways that we already demonized black women for getting her her fame, which is one of the reasons why it was so hard to get sympathy from her because she was already seen as somebody who deserves to be whatever she got into, deserves to be brutalized. So I think that again, that's that's a very fair point. Uh, yeah, that is a
3: very fair point,
2: yeah, so that's the different composition.
0: There are two things that stick out to me about this. One is a little more mundane. I love that it was Megan, the um, reporter, the like Megan, you know, they call her Megan the reporter, <laughs> who has a, a substack who has just blown this whole thing up. Like she has single handedly changed public opinion about this. She's who released Iggy Azalea's letters. She's who showed up every day at the last trial. Um, Tory Lane's call her a googly eyed. BIT, like she is single-handedly and I, and I, it reminds me of citizen journalism. I mean, she's a journalist, but not with like one of the big platforms. And it also was interesting in, in a realm, um in the same spirit of what Miles was talking about, it was fascinating to me that there was no, and I know this was a conversation online, but that no major outlet had a reporter dedicated to this. That is, that is fascinating to me. Like the, from the Times to Ebony to like, and people were like, well, people are cutting staff and, you know, people don't have legal reporters. I'm like, they have assigned reporters to a lot less newsworthy things. And it was a woman who had a substack that shaped this. The second thing, I do think it is really, I agree with you, Miles, and I do think this is a cultural moment. I do think that it has been interesting despite the evidence, despite the jail call, despite all the things People still being like, I think Tory didn't do it. And you're like, well, I think it might be easier to just say, like, you don't think it matters, which might be more true. But it is really interesting to double down. And what's really wild about Tory is that he did not have to go to prison. There was there were there were ways for this not to be this wild. But patriarchy and masculinity, he just could not imagine and a reminder that Meg did not want to press. Like, she gave that beautiful statement about, like, I know the police are hurting black men. I tried to protect him still. And yet here we are, because he just could not um, admit to any wrongdoing.
1: I just, ill. I mean, thank you for the song Kiki, but after that, I don't really have anything.
4: (laughs) uh,
1: I don't have anything positive to say. I I just don't have anything positive to say about Drake. And I I saw Drake perform years ago at one of those festivals that Jay-Z does in Philadelphia. What's that called? Made in America. And that young man was so uncomfortable in his own skin on that stage. And every time he said the N-word, I would... I mean, I, it just is such an uncomfortable feeling because I'm just like, "Who are you?" And talking about him within the ecosystem of Black culture, it's all just very confusing to me. Um, so I'll, I'll I have to, I have to leave it there before I say something really really inappropriate, particularly on behalf of light skinned people.
3: <laughs> the one other thing that I will say, Miles, about you bringing this article to the um, podcast because. This was not the direction of the conversation that i was expecting to go but that's always how it is with you so i appreciate that but um i love the the like woman crush love between meg and beyonce Um yeah. oh,
1: I, it's so beautiful
3: it is beautiful and i think that we don't um i think i think Black women oftentimes support each other and hold each other up and mentor each other and talk about how much we mean to each other, but not in such a public way. We do it in our private circles. We do it in our book clubs or in, on our text threads or whatever, whatever. Um, but to see this public Black girl love, this I support you, you support me, I think is, like, it just makes me smile. And so shout out to them for being public in they in their love for one another and their friendship, family I love it. I love to see it.
2: And public Black love is political. Like, I yes. think that... I love that Beyoncé did it because I think that she knows that Meg is going through a political moment as much as she's going through a public moment. And I think Beyoncé has grown to see herself as not just a public figure, but also, like, a political figure. And I think she knows what that public endorsement is doing, as well as showing love, like I, I just, I just love, I just love the moment. I love the love.
3: My news this week um, is about a interesting way to change law enforcement. Um, as many of you know, law enforcement is facing massive personnel shortages, uh, which is a uh, according to some people, the number one policing issue right now. There are not enough people who want to be police officers because of all of the police stuff that has happened Um, and I'm sure DeRay will have a lot more (laughs) to say about this (laughs) but I'm just bringing the 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 facts you just bring the the facts I'm just bringing the facts Um, and in fact in some cities the number of police recruits is down by 90% here in Washington D.C. the recruitment is so hard out here you get a $25,000 signing bonus if you uh, join the police academy. And uh, the answer, according to um, this particular article, is to hire more women. Um, In fact, the current situation is that only 12% of sworn officers in the country um, and only 3% of police leadership in the United States are women. In other countries, um, that number is, is nearly double Um, And these numbers haven't budged in decades in the US. And so um, there is an an initiative called 30 by 30, which is a national initiative to advance women in policing with the goal of increasing the representation of women in police recruit classes to 30% by 2030, the year 2030, and to ensure that police policies and culture intentionally support the success of qualified women officers Throughout their careers, this national initiative um, comes is it's comes from a coalition of police leaders, researchers, and professional organizations. But of course, was started by a woman police chief and a woman at the National Center for Justice in Policing, or something like that. And um, it's not only applicable to uh, to gender diversity, but they say that their goals are applicable to all demographic diversity. And 300 law enforcement agencies have signed this pledge to increase the number of women in their police recruitment classes to 30%. Um, policing is a very lucrative job at this point. Salaries have grown significantly um, over the past few decades. At, at, in many places, it's in the six fi- figures. But the benefits and the culture of policing um, have to change in order to attract more women. So there are like simple barriers, like the physical fitness tests. In a couple of, of police um, of law enforcement agencies, they found that when you have the physical fitness test at the beginning of police academy, most uh, women can't pass, even though these women outscore their male counterparts on tests and they pass background checks in higher numbers. They can't pass the physical fitness test at the beginning of the academy. But if you put the physical fitness test at the end of the academy, they can pass and they do well. Um, another law enforcement agency figured out that when you provide child care and family-friendly policies like pregnancy and parental leave policies, the number of women increases um, one of the barriers uh, to success is that there are few female mentors to bring people up through the ranks, and that's how a lot of folks get promoted. And there's also not enough outreach beyond the military and criminal justice majors and other law enforcement agencies, when in fact, there are lots of other um Jobs that prepare people for the critical thinking, the you know ability to juggle multiple things at one time, and other qualifications that would make you a good police officer, um, that that just are not being taken into consideration. So, why hire more women in policing? Um, there are loads of benefits. The biggest ones being um, that women use less force. And they use less excessive force than their male counterparts in policing. They are named in fewer citizen complaints. They inspire more trust in the community. They make fewer discretionary arrests, particularly of people of color. And in fact, in a 2021 study of 4 million traffic stops, and we've learned from DeRay that traffic stops are the entry point to um, to police involvement when they don't need to be, um, in this study of 4 million traffic stops, they found that female officers are less likely than males to search drivers, but more likely to find contraband, which shows that they can minimize the number of of negative interactions with citizens without a loss of effectiveness. Now, um, are women in policing the whole entire answer? No. Um, But I think it is worth considering, and I think there's research and data to show it, according to this article, uh, that it might make things a little bit different. And so I brought that to the pod because I'm sure that there will be robust uh, conversation about this. So have at it.
0: So I'll just say two ways to start.
3: Jump, jumps to the mic. Jumps
0: to uh, jumps. So the The first is that the staffing shortage numbers, and Kai, you know this from Human Capital, you can make them do whatever they want. So the police are really interesting is that they will take vacancies that have been vacant for a decade and then all of a sudden will be like shortage. And you're like, well, you've actually never staffed those positions. They just are positions in the police department. So there were never bodies there. And because the public doesn't know, you know, I think about the school system, we had 10,000 employees. There was never a day in Baltimore City where we were fully staffed. It is important. People retire. People quit. So if I wanted to do a press release that said we were short staffed, I get to decide what is short. It could be 50 people. It could be 200. I
3: I think that is true. But I think in this moment where... People are talking about crime waves and whatnot. We see lots of jurisdictions who are adding positions to police forces um, because they think that we need more police. And so this shortage thing matters, I think, even more.
0: Yeah, I think that I think you're right about the like, they think we need more police. It's when I think about classrooms, we have said it's one to 30 kids or something like that. There is no ratio for them. So the police decide tomorrow that they're going to make 200 more positions that they cannot fill. And then all of a sudden they're like, it's a shortage. And you're like, well, I don't, you know, that's like fuzzy numbers. So you think about Tulsa, Oklahoma is famous for this. Tulsa today is like they are down um, 200 police. And they're like, it's impossible to do the work that we need to do. Tulsa is one of the few places that actually does solve 90% of the homicides. And you're like, wow, seems like you're doing a good job with less people. But either way, when you think about the numbers, Baltimore only solves 10% of burglaries. So you're like, you know, when they were fully staffed, they only solved 10%. When they were down, they solved 10%. Like it didn't really matter. What I will say is that The police are adequately staffed everywhere in the country. That is a statement I will stand by and make when you think that only 5% of 911 calls are for violent crime. So they are all staffed to deal with that 5%. There is not a department that is not staffed to deal with the 5%. The rest are missing kids, traffic stops. You know, like, it's like, do you need 800 more officers to pull people over traffic stops? I'm like, "Mm, I'm not convinced. And the woman thing, actually, the gender thing, I think is, of the things, I think it's probably more real. I do think women are just saner. Like, they, it's less of the, like, you know, ego stuff. It's less of the, like, I'm a man. You got, like, that stuff that we come up with policing. I don't think of any of these things as fixes, but I do... I do challenge every single time the police talk about a staffing shortage, I just say no upfront and show me that. Like, show me when you ever staff those positions. Show me the titles. Show me the promotion. Because they will, like, do sneaky things to keep the vacancies as a way to have the numbers look like. And then people get freaked out. And I, I just don't believe it. Or, like, this is what happened in New York City when de Blasio pissed them off. All of a sudden, people just started retiring quickly and then they would come back as part-time officers. So there's actually no change in the number of people. They just weren't full-time staff anymore. And you're like, this is they are playing a long game with us.
1: I, I'm gonna go in a, a different direction because I think, Kaya, what stuck out to me about this, and it it reminded me about my time at the State Department, where um when I would travel around, I was fortunate to see women's peacekeeping units. Um, and it always, I just would be so overwhelmed because I'd see, you know, whether, I think the largest women-led peacekeeping mission is out of India. But you would see these women, whether it was in Kenya or Bangladesh, and just holding it down and just, and it, you know, there's this whole conversation happening at the time. And I think we all know the, what the answer is, but it was shown that, like, increased participation with women in global peacekeeping operations, improve the effectiveness of the peacekeeping and the missions overall. So I think there is something to be said, one, about women in these roles as and I, I, I like peacekeeping more than like police officer, because I feel like that's what a woman would inherently do is like, how can I diffuse this situation? How can I make this situation whole? Um, which I just think is something that's intrinsic. So I don't this is that's what, you know, complete. Everything DeRay is saying, I take as a holy grail. So um, when it comes to the police, um, so but I do think there is something so fascinating and so true about women in these roles. And I I got to witness it in terms of our global peacekeeping operations. And it really was something that was so powerful to see.
2: I don't know, (laughs) y'all. The, this 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 whole thing kind of reads like some police propaganda to me, and I think rebranding the reason why women are not joining the police office or police force as 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 a gender issue is 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 a, is a little dubious because it's almost like making it a liberal. Thing And making it kind of like a liberal talking point. And what we need is representation and we need people participating in the police force. The reason why I'm sure a lot of women are not in the police force is because either they've been in things like the military, they know how men are, and they know who is in charge of the police force, and they're not trying to get into that tank and trying to get even further abused actually that's about my, that's my first and second either they've already had the experience or they know what what will come with it. it's not just it's, it's 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 not just women aren't getting hired it's also women know how dangerous the police office this um the the uh policing is um as a as a culture and i think that it just feels very i'm tr- i'm trying to be less melodramatic when speaking about certain things but it just feels dubious <laughs>
0: <laughs> Dubious, <laughs> I, 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 Miles. I I think definitely propaganda. And remember that there's a black woman police chief of Memphis who put together the crew that killed Tyree Nichols. She. It was her idea. It was her mandate. They were her people who did it. They, uh, the But we
1: can't let her and Drake represent black people. I'm just saying.
0: There's a black woman you, who I... was Philadelphia. Was Portland. Like. Who were as brutal as the men in those
3: roles? And there was a and, and there and there and there was a woman police chief in Washington D.C. who helped drive down crime rates to the lowest historic proportions and whatnot. So we could go tit for tat on this. My broader point is, and, and my, I think I think I think you, I think women do know how jacked up the culture is. But like, if you think uh, for me, like. I'm an advocate for women in leadership. Women lead differently in politics. Women lead differently in business. Women women lead differently in finance. And so to me, it stands to reason that a whole bunch of women in the police force might actually change the culture and do what Diara said she has seen abroad. Now, I don't know if it could work or whatever, whatever, but I'm about bringing constructive strategies to help solve the problems to the podcast. That's my job.
2: I think I is, 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 is we, we're not fighting.
4: But like us see. You're
2: not. These are, one of the, these are one of the few places where it's just not honey and, and bees with us. Because I really don't, and you know, and just speaking of Ancestor Bell Hugs, I think that I have to, I have to echo what she said when it comes to patriarchy does not have a gender and i think that sometimes there has been i'm going to use the word generational divide even though it's it's really just a slick 10 uh 10 15 year gap that's like very small in in, in everything but this is like yo the answer is not having a woman in charge of the nuclear bombs. The answer is not having the nuclear bombs. The answer is not having women in charge of the institution that is destroying us that was founded with the KKK is to implode that institution like that just has to be the thing. And if we keep on following like women do better here, women do better here, we're never going to get to the point of wait, we're in a sinking ship. Sure a woman is more calm when if if she was the captain of the titanic but we have to address the iceberg. We gotta address the water. We gotta tell the band, pack it up, stop playing. We gotta face the music. We have to get this. And just having a woman as representation, I think sometimes specifically for Black people who are thirsty for representation, specifically for women LGBT people who are thirsty for representation, sometimes we can want to see representation in places that we ain't got no business in sometimes because it's a poisonous environment. And I think this article is making it seem like that's a good idea for women to join a a, a deeply patriarchal a deeply violent culture and there won't be and there won't be any um there the, 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 there won't be any causes I'm also thinking about the women who are going to be working in the police office the in the police uh, uh states like Mississippi and the places like Atlanta and the places that attract a lot of these white supremacist white men who would be in the KKK who are now here that it, it, it's it's not clicking on every part for me I, <laughs> not I, just I, my my, my radical don't... abolitionist brain but also just the logistical part. I don't disagree with that
3: miles at all. And like and I think about this the I, I think I think about this the same way as I think about schools, right? Like s- the school system is not serving us well and the way it's currently structured is not going to serve us well. It wasn't designed to serve us well. And there are kids who are sitting in classrooms right today before we get to the new whatever the thing is. Burn it down. Burn it all down. One, show me what the new thing is and let's get to it. And in the meantime, on the way to the new thing, while the things are in front of us, tell me what we do differently. Because I can't imagine a world and I, and I, I, I would love to, but I can't imagine a world where the police are going away anytime soon. And so if we gonna have them, I want some different people in there. That's all. And I do
0: think this is a fundamental thing about harm reduction and abolition and transracial change. Yeah, and this, that's that like, right. That this like the question. The thing is here today, and we got to make it not kill people right now while we work to build the other thing. And those two things aren't at odds. That's and right. I think that is fair.
3: That is
0: right. And you're right, that we got to address the iceberg. I think that was a good – you gave us a good sermon on that one, Miles. <laughs> I think that was – on how he him praise him. Praise
3: Come on a for a little Rock'em Sock'em action on the podcast
2: And <laughs> yes. it's, it's beautiful because it's actually Happening intercommunally which, was, which is what makes this podcast so special Is that you could have this conversation Without it being You know just in love and in, 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 in Perspective, I love it
0: Don't go anywhere, more Pod the peoples coming
1: our thinking, our understanding around the 2024 presidential election. I've been doing a lot of thinking around like why this administration is not breaking through, like media wise, culture wise, just, you know, there are some, and we've talked about this before on the pod, like the Biden administration has done good things, but they are just not resonating. Um, And so the article that I wanted to talk about today, um, you know, the the headline of it, it's from Business Insider. It's Biden's economic policies have quietly made people's lives better and no one seems to care. And <laughs> first of all, I love that headline because one, it's accurate, but it also is just like, I don't think it's that people don't care, but I think it is like for those who aren't really feeling it, it is hard to articulate that. And people aren't seeing some of these big things that this administration has done. So when I say big things, um, you know, there's an there's an economic agenda that has actually meant real changes for Americans, clean water, Internet access, you know, recovering from COVID. Like there's been a ton of help done to folks around um, around COVID relief and, you know, things that also this Congress, which was Republican led, is going to lapse. And the thing I'm not talking about, which we probably should, is the, in, the looming government shutdown. When we have a a Republican-led house that can't even get their eggs in a row um, for what their agenda is, right? But that but that is impacting the Biden administration and what and what he's been able to achieve. And part of why I think that a lot of the achievement hasn't been seen is because he can't get the bigger things through Congress, right? Um and so this article just goes into like some really like some case studies around you know, small town folks who have been impacted by you know the 1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, um, and that did pass in 2021, and that was to help revitalize the economy. Um, so, including a fresh round of stimulus checks, expanded unemployment benefits, monthly checks to parents, um, a lot of those funds to help keep local governments afloat, um, and just allocating billions of areas, billions of dollars. Um, uh, in areas that were where there was desperate need. Um, the same funding also bolstered small-town fire equipment. To, it, it helped pay off medical debt, um, in some cases building new community grocery stores. And so part of this effort, I think this is the other thing, I'm just like, oh, why are we calling this Bidenomics? It's just...
2: <laughs> yeah, it, it echoes to it's a time so, that's not the, the most pleasant... Like, it, yeah, it, it's just. <laughs> stop. Stop. Branding is everything. Branding stop. is a lot. Maybe stop. not everything, but it's a lot. <laughs> stop.
1: Just stop. So the other other accomplishment is broad student loan forgiveness, um, which has quietly forgiven one hundred and seventeen billion dollars in loans. One one seven billion. Y'all, oh, why don't? Okay. So then, so, so again, my mind's like, why aren't we hearing about these things? Why aren't we hearing about these things? And so, you know, you all know, like I live, I'm married to a journalist who's on Vice, on MSNBC. And so MSNBC is always on in my home, unfortunately. Um, But part of what we see and talk about is like, why aren't things, why one, aren't things breaking through? Why aren't things being covered? Why is the Democratic Party still using what's seen on cable news as a metric to how successful they're going to be with resonating with audiences or audiences or constituents in this, in this case, seeing things. And the other thing that Powell and I talked about this morning was Powell said, Trump said something crazy yesterday and you couldn't, th- that was all that was being covered. So it's also like Biden can't compete with Trump's ability to get news and control the news cycle. You just can't compete. Uh, well, I'm saying I'm saying right now as it stands, right? He, he, I'm, he could I'm saying he he could. And I think I think that's my point. <laughs> it's like if you if your if you're kind of nodes for how you're constructing your, your strategy is a little bit more creative and, a, and 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 actually more broad and doesn't really hold on to these historical markers around press hits and cable news. Like, you know, and, and what we do know about cable news are the numbers of viewers. The viewership is going down, 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 down. So it's also where are we finding people? And there was another article, I think, um, the administration, the, the campaign is putting something like $25 million into advertising. And I did watch some of the ads and some of them are really good. But then again, when it comes to the Latino ads, I'll put it on my Mexican hat. They're all in Spanish. My family's been here three generations. Don't nobody speak a lick of Spanish anymore, unfortunately. So I think there's also like, like let's let's think more broadly around what we think Latino people are, you know. So I don't know, y'all. I'm just I'm I'm spiraling because I'm like we have got to figure out how to get this messaging to people. We have a severe messaging problem, and how are we going to solve it? And how can I'd be an advocate around that, um, as, as as we get closer to this election.
2: I just feel like somebody needs to offer me a little gig, child. <laughs> just give me a little two months, and if your if this does not go viral in the first two months, then you can just you know we'll we'll call it done. But you know, I said it in the group chat, and I'll say it here too. Don't nobody out of the. Who, 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 Nobody wants to cry for Biden. <laughs> Nobody wants to say, oh, my God, thank you, Biden, for this, or d- do any type of TikTok. It's really not about how well-produced something is. It's really about how how much something's going out and if it's getting towards the most people. And although I say it in jest, I mean, I put one singular photo of John Coltrane on TikTok and me, who has 25 followers lying on TikTok like that, is getting... That thousands of engagements and my metrics are up. So if you have an assorted effort on Instagram and on TikTok and on these other things, then you'll do better. I always would say in my head, just because in, in, in my, I guess my neurodivergence, this is how I would like kind of understand things, but I will always say like, oh, is this thing for the Flintstones fans or the Jetsons? fans. And I will always think of it like that. And it wasn't an age thing. It was just that how do people want to be communicated with? And I feel like <laughs> the Republicans are getting the Jetsons and the Flintstones. So people who are on their computers, people who are, who are, um, people are on social media, people who are engaged with, um, the, the internet and in, in, in the kind of busyness of today's world. And they're getting old school people who are reading maybe newspapers, New York magazine, uh, not New York magazine, but, um, New York post. And then also, um, people who are getting like traditional television uh, moments and, the Democratic Party is just not turning any of these wins into intolerable, consistent content. <laughs> That's what it just needs to be. It needs to be like just how yeah. in Dare, we like it's almost a joke now when somebody smashes the egg and says, "This is your, uh, this is your head on, just on, um, your brain on." Drugs. That, that The Biden needs to find their brain on drugs and it needs to be uh, proliferated and everybody who's un, who's with a f- cell phone has to be able to engage with it and that's just what you got to do. <laughs> I'm
0: going to go in a little different direction here. I actually I, I i totally hear the advice that they're getting and I see them implementing it and it just is bad advice. I wish I could do a six month stint in the White House. That would be all I could do is just a little ditty over there in public <laughs> engagement help them out. <laughs> <laughs> because somebody's telling them find the outlets and go to them. That's why they invited every Instagram account known to me into the white house. Like I can hear it, I see it. When and I hear people saying, which I've said before, the Republicans have an easier message. It's easier to, t- you know, the the go back message is easier than the go forward message. Like that I hear that and actually what I think is more true, and I say this as my as a humble storyteller who helped tell a story about a movement for a couple of years, is they just don't have good storytellers. Like so I think that's one. It's like somebody needs and it's and this isn't even a critique of the press secretaries, because I think that they are playing to a politics that is just not the moment. Somebody every day should just be on it, the this the account being like, hey, you know, today we did this and say it like you said to your aunt. Instead, it's like, I'm like, what is happening with inflation? I don't know. I'm I'm smart and gotta read five articles to understand what or like, you know. Or they pander, so it's like he's doing something with Ticketmaster. And somebody like, he ain't got more to do than Ticketmaster. And I'm I'm sitting here like, well, should I thought he should have more to do than Ticketmaster. There's not like a, they're just not, they haven't nailed aunts and uncles. And I do think it is actually a much simpler storytelling. The second thing is that it is sort of wild that I don't even know who I think the voice of the White House is. It's not the press secretary, it's not Biden. I don't even know where to go. To be like, oh, this person's t- going to tell me, that, like, I can go here to just figure out what just happened today. I have no clue. In the last White House, it was like, Valerie, was a, Valerie knew how to say it. Obama could say it. The press things made sense to me. You know, like, it just sort of made, I knew where to go to just be like, oh, what just happened today? And and I do think somebody's telling them, well, get the shade room to post it. And, you know, I think that they are underplaying how much they have lost the message and need to reclaim it and they think it's a platform thing and it's not it's a you need a better story to tell that's more consistent the last thing i'll say and i say this because we're doing this whole campaign about eric adams is i do think so much is happening that we take for granted the basics like i think there needs to be just a log like i think eric adams people are like he's crazy when you ask people to say five things he's done poorly they don't know it's just too much people need a place where they can be like oh that 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 like and in the absence of that, it becomes vibes. You're like, Biden's good. It's like, what does that mean? And people are like, ah, they keep this on with loans. You're like, what do you do with loans? I don't know. I gotta Google for 30 minutes. Nobody's doing that.
3: Yeah, I think um, wow. <laughs> this is a lot. Like it It was interesting, Diara, to see like thing after thing after thing after thing that he has done sort of enumerated with the anecdotes. And you're like, huh, that is pretty good. And I think this is such a complex issue. Economics is a very complex issue. And people don't understand what is in the president's control and what's not in the president's control. So one of the pieces of the article said that because of Biden's economic policies, our economic recovery from the pandemic was faster than anticipated. Who knew that? Like, all we know is we had a global pandemic and it has taken a while to come back. It should have taken us much longer, but unless somebody's telling us that, we have no idea. And despite new fire trucks and cleaner drinking water and loan, you know, student loan um, reduction, prices are high. And in fact, somebody needs to explain to people that only some of this is inflation and some of this is corporations like radically raising their prices under the guise of inflation. And so even though our wages, you know, even though jobs are up and in some cases wages are up, like literally you can't keep up with the high prices and the inflation. And that's what people are feeling. And they're like, fix that, Biden. Now, Biden can't fix that in this way. But you got to explain that to people. And so, you know, this, this the storytelling piece, DeRay, resonates with me. They're telling stories about stuff that, I, I mean, you had a 50th hip hop, birthday party at the vice president's house. Great. Wonderful. Were you standing in front of those people and telling them the messages that they should be sending to their community? No. Cause we busy at the cookout. Like, I, I don't know. I like you. I feel like people are focused on platforms and not policies. And, and they got I, like, there are people who know how to do this. There are people who know how to do this. Well, like this feels, I mean, Biden has his lowest approval rating of his entire term. Right and the now.
1: polls are terrible. The polls that came out this weekend are all right. horrible.
3: And this and and before I think, you know, dr you put in the chat that, you know, veteran 2020 people are running the campaign. The 2020 campaign was not a question of what Biden has done. The 2020 campaign was, he's not Trump, right? Simple message, (laughs) easy to go with, lots of people resonated with that. He's not Trump. The people who put together the he's not Trump message are not the people necessarily, maybe they are, but it doesn't seem like it, to put together the, there is this complex set of things that's happening. And let me tell you why this has helped your life and why you should vote for President Biden. That is not happening.
1: Right. And I think, you know, and I think that's the thing, right? And this is even me for being like, a person who worked in democratic politics and worked on two pres- presidential campaigns over 10 years and come and then now having lived in New York City and 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 worked, you know, at least adjacent to creative industries it blows my mind like the opportunity to everyone's point around like if we were to get some of these, you know, DC political inside the beltway folks with some of these creative folks like, again, like there are big advertising companies that or even small black gold ones, honestly, that I think will be a lot culturally resonant than what we're relying on right now. And I think, relate to your storytelling part and actually to Kaya, something you said, too, the reason there are conditions for these strikes to happen and like we there's been so many strikes this summer, this fall. It is because the message from this administration is we are supporting the workers. We want to push against this corporate power and we want to support the workers. And whether that's happening on a big enough scale, you know, obviously I know is a big question, but I think that's important and that's a story. That is a story to tell that does connect the pieces. And that isn't as hard to understand as the Inflation Reduction Act. (sighs)
2: Yes, please, Miles. One one little three-second thing, too, is that, like, and I don't know conversations. It's just me as as an outsider looking in. But for me, it's almost even more ridiculous that we have somebody who is the head of African-American Reach Out and stuff like that and doing all these shade room things. But I'm like, has there been anything even like with Telfar and like what they were doing? Like, to me, that's how... Out of touch, it is because to me, that's such an easy plug in like Telfar TV, democratic message, figure, figure money, figure that out. It will be a moment. The fact that that was even tried, whether, whether people are like, you're pandering or whatever, that's get it out and pander some more and pander better and pander better and pander better because. And you need to sharpen the steel of, of 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 how to pander smartly in this new new age because politics will still be about pandering, just more smart than y'all been doing it in the last few decades.
0: My news is about the black mayor of Dallas, Eric Johnson, who spent a decade, more than a decade, in the as a Democrat in the Texas House of Representatives, who was elected as the mayor of Dallas, um, and he was a Democrat when he was elected. And suddenly in the Wall Street Journal last week, he decided that he was a Republican and he switched parties. And it now makes Dallas the largest city in the United States to be led by a Republican. And he said uh, that he was never a favorite of Democrats. And he called on other mayors to champion, quote, law and order and fiscal conservatism. He said, and I quote, this is hardly a red wave, but it is clear that the nation and its cities have reached a time for choosing and the overwhelming majority of Americans who call our cities home deserve to have real choices, not progressive echo chambers at City Hall. Now, I have a lot of thoughts about this, but I'm more interested in what you all have to say. The first thing I'll say is that this Black man doesn't realize that he is a tool in the toolbox then you know Tool shame on of
3: him the man tooling the man and
0: my favorite saying of late is tokens get played and his time is coming so you know it is that is coming the second thing i'll say is that it apparently only takes 15% of the people who voted to try and force a recall and he won overwhelmingly blue I'm all about it. I, I hope that they recall this man. I hope it's quick. I hope that the Dems put all their money together, get the signatures, get him off the ballot and make this an embarrassing turnabout for the party, for the Republicans um, and for him politically. I hope that this is career suicide for him forever. And the third thing I'll say is when I it, I am proud That the cities are progressive places that don't elect these people up front. And it is a reminder, we talked about this on the pod before, that the Republicans are really anxious about cities. They are trying to figure out how to, They rural communities they got, suburban communities they are managing, cities they are not. And they are trying to figure out what to do in cities, which is why the Houston school system takeover. Like they are trying to figure out a city strategy for a lot of reasons. You know it's like that's where things are concentrated, economic engines, hotbed of people and industry and culture. And you know, there are more of us than them. there are, and this is one of the things that kills me about the Biden messaging is that we got it like from a number perspective and whatever, we can do that. like we the people are on our side. We got it. The numbers on our side, like the structural, the structural power from a raw power perspective is ours. Everything else is not the money, the gerrymandering we screwed there. But from a raw, like people in seats, we will win every time. And part of the organizing task is to like help people see that and believe it. And I do think as an organizer, what I've realized more and more is I think that the the axis by which we win or lose people is whether they believe that structural racism is real or not. Like, can structures be racist or is this all individual choice? I think that that actually becomes the axis by which people make these decisions.
2: I need a minute.
3: First of all, like, this is wild. It's particularly wild because the article says that mayoral offices in Texas are nonpartisan. So he didn't have to he didn't have to do this. Um he could continue to espouse whatever policies and whatever that he thinks, but the thing that is um abhorrent to me is like people voted for him as a democrat. Like there are a bunch of people who signed up cuz he was a democrat and This to me, you know, Diara, you'll think back to your original like constitutional law classes and stuff where we talk about representative Mm -hmm. versus stewardship in terms of elected officials and whether they should represent the people who they represent or whether people imbue them with stewardship so they get to make the decisions no matter what their people think. And, And I just can't help but feel betrayed as a Democratic voter in in um, in Texas who voted for him in Dallas, right? In Dallas who voted for him. And I don't get to, like, you don't get to take your vote back. Yes, you can in a recall, much harder. Um, but that feels really not cool to me. Um, there's one small part of me that hopes that like, this is a spook who sat by the door kind of moment because he did fight successfully to remove a plaque in Texas that said that slavery was not an underlying cause of the Civil War. And I would like to believe, and, and you know, whatever, I could also argue the opposite point, which is every broken clock is right twice a day. But, um, you know, I'd like to believe that we are strategic and thoughtful and sometimes the only way to blow the thing up is to go into the inside and blow it up. And so if you haven't seen the spook who sat by the door or don't know what that is or don't know what the reference is, get yourself a classic piece of black cinema and understand <laughs> what political strategy looks like. Um, that is all I got to say about this dude. I, I like this is bananas.
2: It's it's wild to me so my so so where my mind goes right is that there must be a conversation happening that okay the republican party is acting like this this might be a good way to gain leadership like i i just couldn't imagine this decision happening in private right so a lot of people have to say something's a good idea. A lot of people have to say something privately is a good idea in order for a public bad idea to happen, in my opinion, from what I've seen. So I'm thinking that like- I
0: love that, by the way.
2: <laughs> so I'm like, so I'm like, you couldn't just get, got up and said this. Like a lot of people have been like, yeah, this is your opening. Look what the Republicans are doing. I don't know if people know this- or people who are maybe, in uh, again, in this political government tank, don't know this. Republican is radioactive. So be- just because most Republicans are being loud white supremacists, that doesn't mean that there's a thirst for a new conservative and now you need to be Republican. The best you can do is be a really center-right Democrat. This whole going-to-be-Republican thing is radioactive because I, I have a suspicion That there's other Democrats who might be thinking similar thoughts or wondering if this is their lane to kind of go somewhere more conservative and maybe make a different type of Republican party that's more traditional and just as elitist as it used to be but less outwardly racist and maybe this is their opening. It's not. Just being a Republican is a radioactive thing where now you have to do Trump stuff.
3: But it will it will it will get you a big corporate job when your yeah, term runs out sure. in 2027.
2: Yeah. Just yeah. saying. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I'm just I'm speaking as the people as looks and and how we're going to engage with you. Once you do that, we're like, oh, you're here in Clarence Thomas land and we're not we're not sorting those apples if they're rotten. Right, and we're not seeing how rotten they are. So I, I don't know. If, yeah, yeah. But I totally agree with you.
1: And and what I'll say is just like going back to our conversation about the Biden administration. Like this is an opportunity for the Texas Democratic Party to start a campaign to be like, listen, it's so important. We got to have our people um, in these offices up. and and we need to raise money for a recall. Like but you go to their website. It just they ain't changed nothing on it. They got a, a statement that says we're disappointed. Y'all, come on. Come on, whose job is it to get pumped and to rally and to use these moments as opportunity? like this like I, I just looked on their Instagram they I, I had thirty thousand followers, the Texas Democratic Party. It's thirty thousand people in the smallest town of Texas. That's probably not true. but you know what I'm saying? like I think it's just like it's just come on, y'all get pumped like let's you know let's figure out how to get this going.
2: So th- do you think that he already... So do you... Okay. So when he did all the stuff about taking down the racist stuff, do you think that he did that knowing he was going to convert to a Republican? And hopefully that would maybe suffocate the reaction from the people because he you couldn't be, Repub- you couldn't be a bad Republican and do this? I'm, I guess I'm trying to get into the mind of somebody who does this.
1: I think I will say... At this time. I will say that there are more opportunities... To ascend for Black Republicans, got it. That's just a fact. That's okay. a fact. Um, and so I think you go. I think to Kaya's point, you go into it knowing what that means for you, right? It, there's it, there there. The prime example is Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas has no business being on the Supreme Court. He has no business being at being a, a junior partner at a law firm. Like he, like that is how underqualified he was to be in the Supreme Court, but he was a black Republican. He was a black Republican, you know what I'm saying? So I think there, that he's, he's a perfect case study for what, what you can achieve seemingly if you, if you were on the other side. It's wild, it's absolutely wild.
2: People, do people think we don't remember the 80s? Do people, like, why are people naming things Bidenomics and it sounds like Reaganomics? Why are people <laughs> That's exactly being, like, why. black That's Repo-
3: exactly why. That's exactly why. So That's I'm, exactly I'm, I'm,
2: why. Oh, just, just to, like, get people to think about the Republican 80s? Is that, also oh, people are just trying to, like, we, recharge we have, that memory?
3: I think we have, collectively, we have a, even if you don't know the details, you know that Reaganomics radically shifted the economy of this country, right? and for people who like that great for people who don't it is a clarion call and i think what biden is trying to do is brand a kinder gentler more effective set of economic policies as his thing and I, and i think i don't i mean one i don't know if reagan i can't remember because i was 10 but you know i don't know if reagan called it reaganomics i don't know if that's a moniker that we put on after the fact But I think he's absolutely trying to say the economic policies that I am putting in place will shift this country to a different place positively. Right. That is the Mm -hmm. exact branding that he's going after. It don't exactly work.
2: Though. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't think they know how radioactive. I want to use that word yeah. again. How radioactive certain things mm-hmm. are. I'm like, that doesn't make anybody feel good. Nobody wants I, to. I think. Don't you think it's like the reclamation, right? Like, you know. No, because he, you're still a oh, Biden is in denial. You're an old white man who's rebranding another old white man to the leadership. It's not actually a reclamation because it's the same thing happening. It's just blue this time. It's just blue this time. That's I'm just not, asking. <laughs> <laughs> it's true.
0: <laughs> Don't go anywhere. More PyTag the People's coming.
4: One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader.
0: This week, my co-host and good friend, Kai Henderson, welcomes Jennifer Baker on the pod to talk about her recent article, Black Women Are Being Erased in Book Publishing. Jennifer is a publishing professional with over 20 years' experience in a range of roles, editorial, production, media, as well as a creator and host of the podcast, Minorities in Publishing. Now, where would this movement be without published writers, authors, journalists? They keep us in the know. They bring context to our life experiences and ignite imagination in all of us. This was an important conversation that I didn't
3: even realize I didn't know that much about
0: until I heard Jennifer. Here we go.
3: Jennifer Baker, thank you so much for joining us on Pod Save the People. I'm so excited to share you with our Pod Save the People audience. Um, You have an interesting perspective and story to tell. And let's start by jumping in with your article, Black Women Are Being Erased in Book Publishing. Um, Tell us why you wrote the article.
5: Yeah, thanks so much. And really great to be in convo with you. I was approached by the editor-in-chief of Electric Literature, Dan Michelle Norris, the first Black trans woman to lead a literary magazine at the helm. And she wanted to talk about it. And I, I was open to having that discussion in a very real way of looking at the reality of what's going on. And also, I didn't sign a NDA when I got laid <laughs> off.
3: <laughs> you could spill the tea. Yeah, it,
5: yeah. I, I wanted to get in depth into it. So kudos to Dan for the title. But at the end of the day, we're having the same conversation over mm-hmm. and over and over again, right? Whenever DEI comes up, diversity, equity, inclusion, and and the hiring, and the you know this is happening in corporate, academia, tech. Entertainment and book publishing that a slew of us being black women, black femmes or black people at large are being brought into spaces, especially come 2020.
1: Mm-hmm. And in
5: publishing, that was a big thing. We got a lot of calls mm-hmm. and things are happening. People are leaving after a two. There's this weird one, two, three year marker where folks are leaving who were brought in in 2020 and 2021. And I just wanted to bring notice and attention to the fact that this is happening. And that we're having the same conversations, that it goes deeper than just the hiring practices. It goes deep into the culture. It is a historic thing because it is cyclical and it continues to happen. It happened in, you know, as soon as the stock market crashed. You know, it happened early 2000s. It happened in the 90s. As soon as there's a wave, that wave drops. And that's what we saw in the politics, right? Obama for two terms. And then what do we end up with? (laughs) <laughs> the backlash,
3: so to speak. That indeed. I mean, I, I think um, you're absolutely right in recognizing that publishing is your space that you know so well, but this is happening across lots of industries. And as you said, it is cyclical. This is not new. So um, tell me why at this particular moment, did you feel like it was important to say this? And what has the reaction been like?
5: It went, I mean, it went viral within our industry. Um, So there were several thousand downloads because the post went up around Juneteenth, which, you know, we wanted to recognize the holiday and celebrate and at the same time, bring more awareness. And I got a lot of those back ends, right? Like where people share it publicly and then tell you their story on the back end in a dm Mm -hmm. of i went through something similarly and i'm hearing about this from a lot of black femmes who either can't say anything because you know severance deals which is completely understandable or you know feeling vulnerable (laughs) and also those who really just want someone to commiserate with because they had to deal with this in silence and Again, I just wanted to lay out the real factors, how I felt when I got laid off and the way it was done. It's not that I got laid off, it's the way in which I was laid off, and it was the fact that I was seeing other Black women in prominent positions also leaving or in a two-year period. And I wanted to speak to that and to also the culture within it, because bringing us in, especially as editors, so I was a book editor for about two years, but in 20 years, I did editorial and production and other various things in publishing was it, it seeps into everything. You hire black people. We cannot be on all your DEI committees. We are not (laughs) able to influence the culture in a big way if we're not in the C-suite. We are not able to support our authors if we have no support in the hiring practices of who's also on our teams. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're in these spaces where we're bringing in material and you really can't protect people. Uh, You're trying to, and you really want to believe that you can influence this culture. But that is such a bigger conversation in terms of like, what's at the root.
3: Tell me, you know, have you always wanted to be a writer?
5: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I actually went to school for it. I went to high school, undergrad, and got my MFA. And when I was getting my undergrad degree in English, I didn't want to teach. Irony is I teach now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I didn't want to teach. I was like, I, I don't. It was, so, you know, that was the the path, right? You study English and then you become a teacher but it was more so not even thinking about English or university it was more so public school teaching and i i really wasn't ready for that uh, mm-hmm. so i heard about publishing as an opportunity to make a salary as i'm writing and so in the midst of getting into this career and learning more as a writer and reading more and all those things that's how i got into publishing because it was my career that was giving me benefits and and i was able to see the inside of what this industry like that I would hopefully be part of it as an author and, and am. Um, but it was, it was nice to have that in tandem to have that understanding and recognition from the outside and the inside when writing is really my passion.
3: And can you say a little bit more about how the publishing industry afforded you the opportunity not to just open doors for yourself, but for other Black writers?
5: It's the presence that is important, but it's also the support networks. And I've said that a few times, and I probably will say it a few more times. Uh What it afforded me, besides the paycheck and benefits, was again that insider approach, and you do form a community in these spaces. Again, Mm -hmm. I, I. tended to go towards production. And those are the people who make sure your book gets to the warehouse. We make sure it's clean, it's edited, it's typeset, the cover design, it doesn't break apart, all that good stuff. And then we make sure it's getting someplace to be sold. And Mm -hmm. so being one of a few people of color in that space, it's helpful to have that other eye. Um, especially when you're dealing with things that are dealing with race or gender, culture, and things that I have to become more aware of too in my privileges, uh, and so that kind of dynamic of being able to work with authors, whether they knew I was on the back end or not, was a really great experience. And then you're broadening the community, you're going to readings, you're you know you're really enmeshed in the literary world. And if you're someone who wants to be a writer, that is really really helpful to you.
3: Mm-hmm. And say, I mean, many of our listeners have no idea. We. We love books. We read books. We don't have any idea of the process that it takes to go through to create a book. And so we just learned what it means to have somebody who is thoughtful about production and making sure that your book gets to. But you cite a number of, of black women who are in a number of very influential positions across the publishing industry. Tell us how some of those positions actually make a difference in the life of the things that we get to read.
5: Yeah. So if you have a publisher and that's kind of the person who's making those decisions on what gets acquired, a.k.a. bought. Mm -hmm. And that's the that's a very prominent position. And not Mm -hmm. a lot of black women or black femmes are in that position. Currently, Sanyu Dillon at Penguin Random House. And that's very recent that she's taken Mm -hmm. on that position of a publisher. But there are not many. Um, who have the kind of check signing power or the. Right, blueprint. that's
3: the green lighting, <laughs> right? Uh-huh.
5: Yeah, and if it's like goes b- beyond a certain financial level, they would go to the higher ups and say, mm-hmm. hey, I, we, we need more money to try and acquire this book. And so when you're acquiring, when an a-, a literary agent, if you're a writer, you get a literary agent, or maybe you do this like with the editor directly, um, you submit your book, the editor wants it. And then they go to their publisher and say, This is I want this book. These are the reasons why I would like to acquire it for this amount of money. And you're negotiating with that person as well to understand what money is, which can be a hard thing to think about your work being quantified in that, way right? In that like, way, right? Yeah, it's just like, well, this is the number your book is worth. And it's like, well, how is that? And it's all these other factors of what, what books like this have sold, who you are, um, the markets that they think they can reach, the markets that they don't think they can reach, all those things.
3: And are we safe to assume that just like in every other industry that our talent is not always valued at the commensurate rate as our our non-colorful and usually male peers?
5: Absolutely, because that comes into play and it can be mm-hmm. a boon, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
5: I, I'll tell you in 2020, Books were getting sold for some money by black Uh people because people, you know, it was it was the try to the course correction, quote unquote. Right. Right. It's like we're going to hire a lot of black
3: people. Right.
5: We're going to acquire a lot of books by people because also that summer of 2020 publishing paid me was a hashtag that came out by two authors who developed it and said, hey, how much are folks getting paid? Let's talk Uh about money. Yes, And there is still a website for it. I don't know that it's been updated. But again, it's hashtag publishing paid me. And people were coming out and saying, I, as a Black author, got paid this much. White author got paid four or five times as much as me. Roxane Gay was very honest about what she made. Jesmyn Ward was very honest about what she made. And people were astonished that people who sold thousands and thousands of books won major awards were begging publishers to give them like a hundred thousand dollars. Whereas someone who was white and just came out of an MFA program might've gotten $400,000. And so that came to light. So a lot of stuff was coming to light where there was like, let's do the PR move.
3: (laughs) I mean that, that in fact, like racism thrives off of secrecy, right? And yes. transparency, whether it is understanding how much other people get paid to calling out that black women are getting fired in the industry, this transparency, you can't fix the problem if you don't know that the problem is is happening. And so- right. Un- uncovering these things is really, really important.
5: Yeah, and, and that's what brings me back to like the six executives that uh-huh. we heard about in July, was it, right? Because some of them were brought in for very DEI-specific DEI things. They're all brought in around the same time. Right. <laughs> and we don't know what that's like. We don't know if they're like, oh, you are the only black woman in this space now and you are supposed to fix things. But it sounds to be also like you're meant to fall in line. Uh, and that's something that I just noticed. Um, like, book publishing is a very representative space in certain ways, in terms okay. of like the types of books you'll read or da 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 da. And people are pretty transparent about what their preferences are, even in terms mm-hmm. of just these are the types of books I like. What we're not digging down, like you say, is that secrecy or those internal biases of I prefer this book because why? We're not interrogating that or we're mm-hmm. saying that we're assuming these communities don't read, but we've never tried to get to those communities because we know how to do this path, but we've never taken a shift. And said, well, what, let's try to do more foreign language. Let's try to reach to Latinx audiences or Black audiences. What will that take? That takes effort. That takes research. That takes analysis. That takes money. Um, and so those are the things that it's like when you're, again, plopping Black folks and Black women into these spaces. It's what does it take? That's why it's so cyclical. And that's why mm-hmm. we're saying the same thing over and over again for decades. Is, yep. Well, what does it take to make the change besides putting me here?
3: Yeah. I mean, this is the problem with the DEI hire, the head of DEI, who now is in charge of fixing it for the entire organization without a team, without resources, without even a clear strategic plan, because we feel like if we check the box and we just put a person there, then the rest will take care of itself. But in Mm -hmm. fact, putting a person into a toxic environment that is inhospitable to that person, their culture, and the work that you're trying to do is always going to fail. We've seen that over and over and over and over again, not just in publishing, but across many industries. And we still do it. Why do you think we still do it? I have a theory, but I'm interested oh, in why I'm you so think we do it. I'm interested in
5: your theory too. I, I feel as though the reason is there's no plan. I work at a nonprofit now called Narrative Initiative. And one of our missions is to shift narrative change, uh, to make a more multiracial pluralistic democracy. And this is coming from an organizing structure, right? Like mm-hmm. people who are movement folks. Mm-hmm. And that's a very different mindset than we need to make money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when you're dealing with organized, like there's a goal, there is shifting. We are learning from the mistakes and we are recalibrating. And what I always wanted was those kind of Meetings at the end of the day of what didn't go right and what can we do? Mm -hmm. And we've never had those meetings, I would say. And, And I think that lack of analysis and that lack of just sitting here saying, okay, let us take a beat. Let us analyze, let us see what we could have done. And it's reflective of the I don't want to feel bad. It's defective of the defensiveness. It's reflective of this nature in which even white supremacist practices filter into everything. And it's just an overworking culture, it's a secrecy culture, it's siloing, it's power Mm. dynamics, it's not letting you think. It's, make, it's rushing you to make decisions. And so you can, don't even have time to think. And it's so interesting being in different spaces where I am in one where our goal is to think and plan and be ready and, and organize and collaborate with people on what's the best way forward versus, okay, well, we are planning, but we aren't really looking at the ways that we can improve upon something in a real way and understand that this is going to take time. And that's such a big difference that I've noticed in at least my work atmospheres.
3: I think I've heard people say often, if you want something different, you have to do something different. And oftentimes um, I think these organizations want something different, but they don't want to do much different. And the do that they are willing to is hire a person, but they're not actually willing to change the way they do business. They're not willing to change the culture, which might be, you know, less supportive of different kinds of people, um, and make room for those differences. And I feel like at the end of the day, most people, are making these decisions responsively right what we saw was i mean none of this stuff was uh, all of this stuff was true before 2020 but what we saw in 2020 was a major response to a particular police incident and everybody then the the so-called racial reckoning and everybody literally one-upping each other to show, I prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion. I have a high level person. I have a strategy that is going to help my bank make even more money by doing things specifically targeting people of color or whatever, whatever. And it was... It was the grand race to show that you were about DEI and then there was an article in the New York Times maybe a year or two ago that showed that all of these promises and commitments that were made by corporations that you know less than a quarter of them had actually been fulfilled that most of them hadn't gotten off the ground and so I think that when I mean when people want to make a pivot or a change in their organization they bring in a new team they invest resources they create the environment for that team to be successful and we just haven't seen that across any of these industries when we, when they talk about a real commitment to diversity equity and inclusion and again this is not new talk to me about tony morrison and how she figures into this story
5: yeah i mean tony was at Random House, and she was like very lauded as the. I mean, people still say it to this day. It's like they Absolutely. kind of like laud it, like oh, Tony Morrison was. But she was also there's this wonderful documentary um, that Sandra Guzman produced of Toni Morrison before she passed, where she she was very open, Ms. Morrison, about the fact that she was not getting paid the same, and that she had to march into her boss's office and and demand to get the same salary. That she (laughs) needed Uh to get, that she had to present herself every time as someone to as an authority and to be understood that she had to fight for the books that she wanted Uh uh, while she was there, too. And and she had these visions, right? And she would have parties and she was with these, like Muhammad Ali and, you know, like all all these folks, like she was with them to help their books ascend in a way and to get to those communities and go to Harlem and to go here and to go there uh, and prove, like she had to prove herself. So I think even we kind of romanticize even that of like, well, Tony got some, but it's like, well, what does that take? She was a single mom to two boys.
3: Mm -hmm. Who ultimately quit that job, <laughs> Yeah,
5: and went to, and said, I'm, I'm going to be a professor now. I'm going to write full time. I'm going to do what I got to do. And this was all before she got the Nobel prize, right? Like she left in the early eighties, uh, but, but that was a salary. Point, she needed that salary.
3: And to your point, there was never an after action review. Oh my gosh, Toni Morrison was amazing. We lost her. What could we have done differently? What are we going to do differently moving forward? We just keep doing the same wash, rinse, repeat cycle. Right i 'm interested in um, we have a, a big labor movement, a labor shift that is happening right now. Um, we see the United Auto workers who are striking we see the Hollywood writers and actors who are striking um, and the publish publishing industry saw its own strike. Talk to me a little bit about that and the implications that you think that has for the broader kind of labor uprising that's happening right now.
5: Yeah. And booksellers too. Booksellers uh-huh. are, are unionizing even more now. Powell's workers, they went, did a one day strike. Powell's is a very big indie bookstore in Portland, Oregon. They mm-hmm. did a strike on Labor Day. Uh-huh. To, to, sh- to show that they had they're like we're serious and sometimes that's how it starts right we're gonna do a one- day strike and show you the impact and then if things go awry and that's also how the HarperCollins strike because I used to work at HarperCollins. and they did a one day strike while I was there um, and then later after my, I got laid off um they did a they ended up being on strike for a little over three months it went from November to, through February and and it brought a, I I think it did bring attention. I don't know that it brought as much attention as like the Writers Guild strike, right? Like it didn't get as much visibility as I think it necessitated. Um, But I'm also in New York City. So Mm -hmm. I think for us, we heard a lot about it and I'm in the book industry. Um, So for that one, it really brought more attention to salary demands. I think that was like the biggest thing and that was one of the biggest wins. Um, They had asked for 50, they got 47,500 with the meeting 50 in about two years as a starter for entry level positions in new york Uh, and that was one of the biggest things there were other things as well i don't know that everything got they reported it in publishers weekly in some places but i think that again the salary got the most prominent visibility and that's one of the biggest issues is this these salaries the secrecy of that Mm -hmm. and finally seeing a unification because Before that strike officially closed down, two other publishers, two other very major publishers, we have Big Five, those are five Mm -hmm. major publishers in New York City um, and other places, but they are also based in New York City, they went up you know, they were like, OK, so we're just going to do this right now.
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll, gonna... <laughs> we'll avoid the hard stuff. We'll take the lesson and make the changes. Yeah.
5: And they went up to forty seven five. And then also, you know, the, the union accepted that with the understanding that there would be um, further provisions later. Um, but that was something, you know, it mm-hmm. it's a big deal when other people are watching and saying, you know what, this is going to hit us and i think people are realizing to your point you know when was it ups they almost went on strike oh, yeah and everyone, UPS. Was, aye, aye,
3: aye. everyone was yeah yeah everyone
5: was girding themselves like oh no oh no that's right
3: <laughs> like,
5: <laughs> they are like this cannot happen this cannot happen you know the writers guild is not budging but at yeah. Screen Act, they're not budging folks are not budging anymore and it's, i think that's the most visible thing and it's important
3: It's interesting because I think the pandemic forced us to consider new ways of working across the board. Um, we also saw certain industries make zillions of dollars. And so there is a labor reckoning that's happening right now where people are saying, if you make a lot of money, your workers need to make a lot of money. And, And as workers, we want to work under certain conditions. I think the pandemic empowered us to show that, you know, we could work under different conditions and still produce. And so there is a fundamental shift that's happening across this country around how people work, how people are compensated. And I think the DEI piece is part of it, but there's just a larger thing about, that I think um, forces us to like reconsider capitalism, at least the the way that we've been doing it, right? Yes. Um, yes. You talk ab- about erasure a lot in your article, and you know one of the things that's happening right now is a concerted effort through book bans and censorship and the, um, the um, banning of teaching accurate history that is happening across the country in the culture wars. Um, what do you think about that? And where do you think we'll be five years from now?
5: Yeah, it's really nerve-wracking, because I was literally doing a panel with um, Emily, who is the president of the ALA, and some others. And we were talking about how book banning really extends to everything, because it's not just about book banning, right? Mm-hmm. You have the Comstock Law from, I believe, 1873, and how it, it's coming back into play, especially with everything that's happened with Roe v. Wade. And part of the Comstock Law was the fact that it was, quote-unquote, indecent, You know, Mm -hmm. anything that was like perverse materials, pornographic, what have you, all air quotes on my part, because it's not specifically defined. Mm -hmm. And so information can be seen as that representation can be seen as that and also reproductive methods, understanding Mm -hmm. how to what reproductive justice is, but also getting actual things um, to prevent pregnancy through the mail is part of the Comstock law, too. And that's coming into play about like now that we're seeing other other things. So the book banning is tied to other forms of banning and erasure that's happened of languages and all that stuff. So I see it as everything's so connected. So with all that, it's interesting because the erasure has been going on for a very long time, right? You have like the erasure of so many cultures due to colonization and even before then with religious figures and all this stuff. But there, it made me think of the Comstock Law because of the fact that book banning is tied to other forms of erasure. And the Comstock Law from 1873 that is still around uh, and I think is coming back into play, especially after the, the decisions about Roe v. Wade from SCOTUS, is to get rid of anything that's considered, quote unquote, indecent. But it is not specifically defined what indecency is. So indecency can be technically information. It can be representation. It can be understanding more about reproductive justice and receiving things to prevent pregnancy, let alone information um, or about science, about religion and all that stuff. So it's really tied to so many ways in which someone can just say this is indecent. This is inappropriate this is you're indoctrinating people into xyz which is what yes. is used especially mm-hmm. now with so many books especially for children especially with lgbtq plus representation it is seen as you know sexually explicit like the terminology mm-hmm. that is used uh is is
3: bonkers to it's me. out of <laughs> control it's out and of it's, control
5: in every way it's not yes. just going to be books and it isn't just books right it's what we've been dealing with
3: yeah the thing that makes me most crazy about the whole book banning and censorship thing is I deeply believe in a parent's right to control whatever their child reads. I don't believe in your right to control what my child reads. And so these sweeping rules that say what all kids can and can't read just cannot work. Um, As we wrap up our conversation, tell me, you know, based on what you experienced, what you wrote, and then what you've heard from other people, what would you tell large publishers at this point? I would say
5: accountability is key here. There has to be some level of accountability because things are happening to people. People are overworked. People are stressed. People are being traumatized in the workplace and they have nowhere to go. HR is not supporting them. People are not listening to them. And at the end of the day, it's about having a product. And we all understand what the work is and, and love what the work is and love supporting authors and sharing art in these stories. But there is a, a great deal of a lack of listening, a lack uh-huh. of compassion and a lack of accountability that's happening that really needs to affect the full culture and each of us on an individual level to be dedicated to this and not solely wor- worry about, oh, well, what do I have to do to get you to do your job versus yeah. how do I make you want to come in every day and That's do this the thing. job?
3: That's the thing. Every organization is only as good as its people. And so if your people are not happy, if your people don't see themselves in leadership, if your people don't feel supported or don't have opportunities for advancement, if your people aren't getting paid decently, then how can you run a great organization? All of that. So here on the podcast, we ask our guests two questions. And the first one is, what is a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that has stuck with you? I think the
5: best advice is that it's not always something doesn't always need to deal with me. So how someone is reacting to me or especially when folks get defensive, it's like that may not be about you, Jen. Mm -hmm. So not everything's about you. (laughs) And recognize that and take it for what it is. (laughs) And I was like, that's really helping my anxiety.
3: (laughs) That is good. That is very good advice. That is very good advice. The second question is, what do you say to the people that are giving up hope in this moment? People who may have read your book or your article or they've fought in the streets or they have you know, been engaging online and to change the world and the world is not changing for the better. What do you say to those people?
5: i say you're not alone because I've been in even more spaces where everyone is feeling that deluge and We are in it together in a real way. I'm not saying it as, you know, the flowery language of like, we're all in this. I I do mean it. I like If you are in those spaces where you can be with others who really understand the emotional toll and impact of what's happening, that can help alleviate something, but it doesn't erase what's going on. So honor Mm -hmm. where you are, recognize Mm -hmm. you're not alone, and we're all having these same conversations and in what ways can we be in conversation with each other to propel real action
3: that's i mean that's community right that is what being in community does for us um where can people find more from jennifer baker if they want to read more of your work and how do we stay in touch with you
5: oh yeah my website is jennifernbaker.com so j e n n i f e r n And I also encourage folks to check out um, the nonprofit I work at, Narrative Initiative. Um, It's a lot of vowels, so maybe I should refrain, but (laughs) I'm going to try to spell it out. (laughs) We will we'll
3: post it we'll post it in the show notes so that that's people great. can click on and see where and yeah. find
5: you. Thank you. And that's narrativeinitiative.org and it's such a great space and we're doing wonderful work of uh, working with organizers and writers and artists and, and so many folks speaking out and bringing forth change in so many ways. So those are the two spaces that you can find me.
3: Well, I want to say thank you so much for sharing with us. I feel like I learned a ton about the publishing industry. This is, you know, we always talk on the pod about like things we just didn't think about. And this is one of the things that many people just don't think about. And I feel like you helped us understand a lot about what's going on in publishing and what's going on broadly. Um, we consider you a friend of the pod. And so you are mm-hmm. part of this community. Thank you for being part of this community. And we can't wait to have you back soon.
5: Thank you so much, Kaya. It's been such a pleasure.
3: Likewise.
0: Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Posse of the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out and make sure you rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Posse of the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Evan Sutton. Executive produced by me. And special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, Dr. Ballinger, and Miles E. Johnson.
4: I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at shipped.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time?